Welcome to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. On this episode, we will be talking about suicide prevention. So I want to make sure that you all have numbers that you can contact in case you or someone you know is in crisis. So grab your pencil and here's the number. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or you can text the crisis text line, text hello to 741-741. Both of these services are free and available 24 hours, seven days a week. All calls are confidential. So please contact any of these uh, resources should you need. Enjoy the episode. Brandon, how's it going? Hey, hey, things are good. Things are good. Thanks for having me on. I'm so happy to see you and for us to have this conversation, especially um, since we're going to focus in on a particular area in suicide prevention, which is related to uh, the Black community and kind of uh, your your work there. Can you you talk a little bit about like, since I didn't introduce you as you are, and this is what you do, why don't (laughs) you? Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, your area of interest and in, in your passions? Absolutely. So I work in, in suicide prevention. I work with, with states. I work with some tribes. I work across um, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, local organizations. I'm here in Baltimore, Maryland today. So I'm, you know, I'm born and raised here in Baltimore. And so I, I, you know, really was into mental health, interested in mental health and, you know, really because of, because of Baltimore, Mm. like, you know, and, and being from here and kind of like watching mental health having an issue in our, in our community, but it wasn't one that we talked about a lot. And, you know, living in Baltimore kind of gives you some experiences, good and bad Mm -hmm. that you kind of, you know, take with you. And so I knew and saw like some, it impacted some people one way, some people another way, but we were all impacted. We were desensitized to a lot of things, especially around like community violence and, and trauma and all sorts of stuff like that. And so I got my interest there. And so I, I really wanted to get into like the violence prevention space and, you know, give back to the city and things like mm-hmm. that. And um, in going through undergrad at Morgan, the illustrious, the magnificent Morgan State University. Okay. <laughs> like, and going through, uh, <laughs> going through there. And, um, you know, and at Hopkins, I really started to like get exposed into other forms of violence prevention. And then I connected with some people into suicide prevention. And, you know, I took a job at the state as director of suicide and violence prevention. Mm. And I really got to understand how it was impacting our community. Mm-hmm. Like even before, like when I touched on it before, like I wasn't aware of that piece because we weren't talking about it. Like nobody was not nobody, but a few people were interested in that and so when I got into it it wasn't you know so much of the focus area and then once I got there I wanted to explore more and I learned a lot about how it impacted us and so you know so I do stuff locally with local organizations I do stuff on a national level the Black Mental Wellness Lounge um, also we'll get into but I really um, now that I know and fully understand how it impacts us um, it's, it's brought out, you know, a, a passion in me to make sure that, you know, other people understand how it impacts us yeah. and for us to 
engage in like, you know, doing this work actively in our community? Yeah, I think that's really amazing because, um, you know, a lot of times when I think about the work that's done in mental health, in mental health in general, we always have to kind of make sure people are looking at the demographics and not doing a one size fits all, looking at the cultural context and uh, even the geographic context. You know, I am a um, suicide attempt survivor. Mm -hmm. And um, even when I became a part of the attempt survivor community, as it became a more vocal and empowered community, there were not very many people who looked like me who Mm -hmm. were leaders, either family members as loss survivors or um, attempt survivors who were talking about the black and brown um, experience. So, I mean, are you, are you still finding that the case that it's kind of like, hello, hello, (laughs) (laughs) hello, anybody out there? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think it's getting better and I would probably say it's probably as good as it's ever been, I think, I think at this point, but I still think we have a long way to go. Um, you know, I think universally people don't attribute Black people to mental illness and dealing with, you know, mental health struggles and all that other stuff. Like we don't, you know, we're not, we haven't been historically a part of that conversation. Like, you know, mental health system wasn't built for us. It didn't have us in mind. And that comes out still, you know, still now, you know, we still have disproportionately there just aren't enough you know mental health providers and in those spaces of lived experience of black people black people in the diaspora just aren't included in there you know in in, into that space and I think there are a lot of reasons for that I think people are still uncomfortable having black people be open and free and expressive and talk about their experiences you know in that way we're often still muzzled and still you know like there's that like professionalism dynamic that we still deal Mm -hmm. with of like can't share too much because it'll get used against you and you don't want to present yourself this way you know and so I still think there's a lot of that in this space but what I can say is that I think we're carving our own spaces Mm. what I see more and more is that we're just building it on our own which we've done in so many different arenas like throughout history like that's just what what we do if it's not there if it doesn't serve us then we'll build our own and I think now we're starting to see more spaces where we're creating and giving a platform for uh, people who look like us to talk about their journey with mental health and be able to talk openly about, you know, things that they've done, you know, to heal. So is that why you created the Black Mental Wellness Lounge? Was that part of the uh, impetus there? So what what exactly is that? Yeah, it's, it's, I call it my pandemic baby. It is <laughs> birthed out of a need and just, you know, timing and being able to be in the house um, all of those things kind of together. But essentially the Black Mental Wellness Lounge is um, a YouTube channel, but it is dedicated as a space to individuals in the Black community, a part of the Black diaspora, to talk around and have conversations about uh, mental health as it pertains to us. So like, what is the experience of Black people with mental health? How does it differ? Like, what are some things that we can do to change how people think about it, how we talk about it, and to give people tools and resources also to be able to help their own mental health and wellness and give them a path uh, to healing. But essentially, uh, you know, I'll do personal videos talking about a specific topic, um, or I'll bring on guests to do interviews um, with, with them. And we've covered 
um, a ton of different topics. Um, we just did one, an interview that talked about um, the transition of young people back into schools and what the pandemic has meant to, to Black children and how we support them mm. um, and their parents in going back to school. We've had conversations, um, you know, particularly around um, around rest and recovery. So like, how do we as Black people like be able to feel that we can rest and slow down mm-hmm. without feeling that, you know, like we're going to, you know, lose our place and things are going to go, pa- you know, past us. You know, we talk a lot about that, like, you know, we have to be, you know, two times better and, you know, you know, two times sharper and, you know, always on. Yes. That comes with burnout, right? Like we can tire ourselves trying to, you know, keep up with, you know, these standards. And it's always another hoop and hurdle for us to get through. You know, I, I try to use it as a healing space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for people to, to see themselves in the video, to get a resource that may, you know, help them or help someone that they know. We did a roundtable, a Black men's roundtable recently mm-hmm. that got a lot of good feedback from people who just reached out and said, like, hey, some of the things that were mentioned, like, I really needed to hear. And so uh, we do that. And another piece of it is the Future Black Voices segment. So that one essentially is where I get um, black professionals, either in mental health, social work, or public health, to talk about their experiences in the workplace, like professionally, mm-hmm. finding a career path, what they did in college that was helpful, and to also talk around barriers and challenges that they had to face to really give young people, whether they're in high school, college, whether they're entry-level professional, recent college grad, to give them some tools to be able to navigate this space and hear from people who look like them, who've encountered and gotten past some of the the common pitfalls that are put up in our place, you know, hurdles that we have to jump as as Black people. And so that's my way of like giving back to those coming, you know, after me Mm -hmm. in this space as well. And so I wanted, like, I wanted to be this comprehensive information resource and healing space as much as it can be on YouTube. So you gave birth to a very giant baby <laughs> during <laughs> the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty it's big. For me. That, that might be triplets or something. That might not be one baby, right? <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> but thank you for bringing up the rest thing. I'm really taking that. I'm taking that to heart. I'm taking more time to kind of figure out, you know, what is my time and what is everybody else's time, right? Mm-hmm. And and preserving time for me. But when we're when we're doing a lot of this work, especially, you know, we're talking about, you know, our own mental wellness, we're also talking about addressing systematic issues, systematic um, um, oppression, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when we're trying to address that and dismantle, you know, these systematic issues, how do we take care of our mental wellness at the same time? Yeah, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. And I think, a lot of it really comes from a change in mindset and not trying to necessarily use some of the things that are, are being put against us and try to, you know, use that to change systems. I really think it part of what systemic, you know, racism, oppression and things does is that it's built in a way to burn out those who are trying to combat it. And I can even talk personally about this. I think one of the things that I have learned myself and have been taught in in, in engaging with people is understanding that 
we're not in this fight by ourselves and it can feel lonely because some of these systems, you know, are created to create division and silo people and make you feel that you're in competition with other people. Um, Mm -hmm. But in learning that a lot of us are working together in this space and just, you know, build collaborations and, you know, understanding what other people are doing, I think is a, is, is a key one. You know, I tell people like lane work is really good. Like we all have lanes and people, you know, will say like, you know, you can do anything and you can do this and third. While that may be true, it may not be for you to do, right? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there are certain things that, you know, I know that there are food deserts. I know that food deserts exist and food insecurity is one of the things systemically that can burn people out and cripple communities because people aren't getting, you know, what they need in terms of, you know, just getting enough fuel to even be in the fight on a very physical level. However, that's not my lane. Mm-hmm. So I can't spend so much time there. I can equip those who are doing the work with like, hey, here's some stuff to take care of your mental health and wellness while you're doing this work. But it's not for me to take off my mental health cap and put on the food insecurity one and go here and then mm-hmm. access to healthcare over here at a certain point, I'm going to be burnt out. So for me, it's, it's, you know, trusting those people in those other lanes to, to do that and understanding that, you know, while these things are major, there are, are teams of people and people have been, you know, and for me, I believe that people have been like gifted to work in certain areas like they have their purpose to work in certain areas so it's not for me who's not purpose there you know to jump in and feel like I'm not doing enough so let me get into this one you know I have to know where my lane is and my lane may just be to encourage the person whose lane that is Mm -hmm. and so the, the other thing I've learned and it goes back to the rest thing and I learned this because a friend challenged me with this one and it was really around understanding that if you stop, the fight will still go on. You pausing to take a break is not going to be the difference between systemic oppression succeeding or it failing. Mm -hmm. That there are people willing, you can tag out and someone else will go in and continue the fight. Like there is space and enough of us really fighting and dedicated in different spaces and different arenas for us to be able to take a break. And again, if we don't, if we feel like this is so, you know, because we've been, everybody's been impacted directly by this. So you feel that this is, you know, this is your fight. Like this is your thing. Yeah. And so it feels like if I take a break today, like I'm failing someone somewhere, I'm failing, you know, the fight, I'm failing my ancestors, like something I'm not doing enough because the thing is so big and it's been so aggressive and pervasive for so many years that you're like, you know, taking yeah. a break is going to be too much. And so what I've learned is that if I rest, the fight doesn't stop. Me resting is aiding the fight because I can go back in at my full strength, top level with a clear mind, because we need that rest to to be able to to think clearly, to be able to have our critical thinking skills at, at top notch. So I'm helping when I rest and recover. And so, you know, I don't always do it as much as I should. But mm-hmm. I, I get conceptually like and I, there's no guilt with me when I take that time to rest and recover. This is really pow- this is 
I hate, I always use the word powerful, but it's, it's one of those, okay, mic drop moment, or uh, what do they, what do they call it? My, my head is blown. What, what is, what is, <laughs> I know that, okay, yeah, mind blown. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. It's either we either drop the mic or we had the mind blown. I'm not quite sure which, but it, and the reason I say this is because this is what I learned about work, not, not about sort of the fight, but about work when you show yeah. up to work and my jobs, you know, of late have been, um, you know, generally where you're kind of a quote unquote exempt employee where, you know, you work more than eight hours a day, you, you work yeah. until the job, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, it's kind of hard to be in those kind of roles because you feel guilty if you take time off and you're mm-hmm. like, well, who's going to do it? If I'm not there, it's not going to get done. And you're, you know, right. and you just kind of keep like driving hard, driving hard. And, yeah. you know, and then somebody else, you know, usually the person above you, your boss is driving harder. And so you have to drive yeah. as hard as your boss. Like if your boss doesn't leave until seven o'clock at night, then you best not leave till eight o'clock at night, you know, <laughs> right. that kind of thing. And so I, I used to not, and, and it, you, people brag, you know, oh, I haven't used my vacation. I have 45 days of vacation. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, almost. 60 days of vacation as in like bragging and I'm thinking wait what no that am I supposed to like be saving my vacation is that what I'm not supposed to be using it so it just sends this very interesting message in the world of work And, and and it was somebody who told me similarly if you drop dead tomorrow you think that work is going to, no, that work is going to go on. People are going to keep on going. So you, you take the time that you need so that, you know, you are refreshed and that your, you know, your brain is clear and that, you know, your body is rejuvenated so you can come back fresh and go back in. Right. So I love the way though, that you're, you're putting it um, for all of the things that we do, including, um, you know, any of our activism work or activist work are, you know, in our daily work and our daily life that we do need to take those breaks. And I, I have learned that actually in the pandemic, because it was so easy for people to say, well, get on a Zoom. You don't have to drive yeah. anywhere, get on a Zoom. And so it was like Zoom back to back to back. I couldn't understand why I was so tired. I'm yeah. like, I'm not going anywhere and I'm exhausted. Why am I exhausted? Right. So, yeah. um, you know, we met we worked together briefly uh, before I kind of moved on to doing whatever I'm doing. Right. And um, one of the things that both internally to the work and and also externally in sort of the the advocacy world is, you know, looking at suicide and suicide in the black community, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when it was first sort of brought to our attention, you know, we were looking at demographics, but, but the demographics never seemed to focus on black and brown communities. How are we supposed to understand what these demographics are? Like, what are the demographics and what are some of the risk factors and what, what should we and could we be doing? Yeah, I, I would agree. We haven't, we weren't looking at this issue as a, as a field for quite some time. And again, to much respect to a lot of the, um, you know, writers and researchers and things that have come before me, who've been like screaming this, you know, for, for years. And, you know, the, the field hasn't really listened until recently, but essentially what we're dealing with is, you know, some trends and some changes that we've been seeing, you know, over a specific span of time. And so starting with the younger group, um, we've seen a, a twofold increase in the suicide deaths of African-American young children between the ages of five and 12, um, over the last about 13, about 13 years. Um, so again, mm-hmm. major, no one was, was paying attention to this. And there was one researcher out of Ohio who was, who wasn't looking for it, 
and was looking for other stuff, happened to see it and was like, wait, and then ended up publishing it in, in JAMA Pediatrics some, I guess, five years ago at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we were watching that twofold change and we saw the inverse happening with their white counterparts where that rate between five and 12 had decreased. Um, so we get this inverse relationship um, that we're seeing there. And so we're seeing our young children, particularly young boys between the ages of five and 12, um, experiencing mm. this. Um, and I can honestly say, if I had not worked in Maryland as Maryland's director, I would have thought that five, six, seven age range was a mistake. And was it something that happened? I can honestly say working stateside, we absolutely experienced those things. Another data point is with our adolescents is that we're seeing significant increases in suicide attempts of our adolescent Black children, particularly Black girls, and particularly suicide attempts that require some type of medical intervention. So we're talking going to the emergency room, we're talking urgent care, we're talking going to a doctor's, you know, what what have you. And so this, um, Dr. Michael Lindsay saw this um, and published it recently, I can't remember where, but you know, seeing this this increase with suicide attempts in our in our adolescents. So we got the younger side. What we've been seeing recently as well, you know, everybody has kind of unfortunately consistently gone up in uh, mm-hmm. suicide rates as as adults. And so while there was, you know, there's a bit of a drop off in terms of the rates as they go from younger to uh, black adults. One of the things that we've been seeing now is that we haven't necessarily been seeing the suicide rate increase during this pandemic time from the data that you know we we see at state level local level what we've been seeing is changes in who is dying by suicide during this pandemic mm. so um, maryland produced some data that showed that while the overall rate didn't really go up african-american adults were dying more by suicide we saw that we've seen the same thing in chicago we've seen the same thing in milwaukee um around this as well and again we know suicide data comes out really slow takes a long Mm -hmm. time to get it so we don't have nationwide you know national data to to point to at this yet but these are some trends that we're seeing and I also got some of that information um I recently did a presentation for Indiana who mentioned the same seeing the same dynamic of individuals of color dying by suicide more particularly during um during this pandemic and so as we're looking at, at at these shifts, I mean, obviously there are a ton of different things that we can that we can point to. Obviously, some of the the typical ones that were exacerbated during the pandemic, isolation, you know, being away from other people, economic distress. Obviously, we can say disproportionately that black people were hit and hurt economically during the pandemic more than anybody else. Disproportionately, black-owned businesses. Uh, we're closing um, compared to other uh, businesses owned by by other racial or ethnic groups, and so we look at we look at that family relationship problems. What creates a family relationship problem faster than money? So if you're looking at the economic side, looking at these family the relationships, we can see these things um, you know happening. And again, since we're being disproportionately impacted, you know, by the effects of the pandemic, all of these risk factors and things are going up. Historically, like looking at our our younger population, what we found is that family relationship problems and traumatic life events impact our young people disproportionately um, as they do compare to their white counterparts. We can take 
and look at the pandemic, I mean, what's more traumatic than and what has created more risk factors than increasing isolation? Disproportionately, African-Americans, especially during the beginning of the pandemic, were impacted by uh, COVID cases and COVID deaths. So we have a traumatic life experience in a, a change in um, your family member getting sick, you know, unexpectedly a family member dying, a, a, a parent, um, a, a grandparent, a caregiver, you know, dying due, uh, due to COVID. When we look at the stress of, you know, not being able to go uh, to school, while we know some schools aren't all safe environments, there may be trusted adults there mm-hmm. that are protective factors that they're not seeing. Teachers, administrators, coaches, mental health professionals in, in the schools, extracurricular activities in, in, in those adults. Getting back to the food thing, disproportionately youth of color get their foods, get maybe two meals out of their day from school. So if schools are closed, then we have that on top of it. These are all traumatic life events. And since we know disproportionately that our kids are impacted by that as compared to their counterparts, the pandemic creates this this opportunity for additional things on top of it. And so um, those are where some of the the metrics are. Obviously, you know, we're Mm -hmm. we're still collecting and seeing, Mm -hmm. you know, data as it comes in. And, you know, I have friends in different states, you know, we talk about these things and I've, I've been in suicide prevention for, you know, eight years going on nine years now. And I joke with people, I, you know, always get this moment. You're socially like you're meeting people you don't know. And you're, you know, maybe with a friend and you're talking and somebody inevitably goes, so what do you do? Yeah. And I go, I work in suicide prevention. And then a hush falls over the room. And <laughs> if we can get to a point where it doesn't, where people understand, like, this is, you know, our statistic we always talk about is that one in four people have experienced suicide or ideation in their life. So why is it such a thing that we can't talk about? Why can't we hear the word without, yeah. you know, you know, shuddering? We don't want people who've experienced it to feel that way also. It was like, oh my God, this is such a, a terrible thing. We can't talk about this. It's more common than we give it credit for, even in our community. Yeah. So how do we change that conversation and build support that work particularly for us? And so I think right now we're still trying to figure out where all those supports are. Historically, we haven't had evidence-based practices from our community that have been, you know, accepted. And so where the healing is happening is happening in bubbles across the country. There are healing circles here. You know, there are groups here that build camaraderie between, um, you know, for LGBTQ uh, plus young people, you know, like those are their men's group happening in barbershops around mental health around the country through like the Confess Project. I know of one of them. And so it's like, but there- Yes, I'm hoping to talk to Lorenzo. He's on my oh, list. Lorenzo is, Lorenzo's uh, yeah, my he's guy. The, I know he's the bomb.com. Yes, we've <laughs> spoken. So. Yes, yeah, I mean, but you're, you're yeah. talking about, it seems almost so common sense, but yeah. doesn't have evidence behind it, then it's not mm-hmm. really valid or something. I don't know what that's all about. But, but yeah, it's like, I've said to people, well, where do young people go? Where do Black people go? Where will you find them? You'll you'll find the women in the beauty salons or the barbershop because I have yeah. a you know I have an undercut, so I'll go to the barbershop for the undercut and I'll go to the beauty salon for the, right, right. the rest of my hair, right? And you don't kind of go when you're done, like oh yeah, five minutes they zipped off my hair and I'm out. No, if you go to a black salon, yeah, right. you best bring your lunch, you best bring your <laughs> coffee, you right. best you know because you're gonna be there for a second, Absolutely. right? And um, it's kind of like our version of Cheers, but it's not a bar, right. you know, where right. everybody knows your name and you kind of are 
telling your story Absolutely. and your experiences, your troubles and your joys to your um, to the person who's doing your hair. So to equip that person to be able to have better conversations around mental wellness and to help people think through if they need extra supports, where to go. Yeah, that's just like a whole big old group Absolutely. of people who could be helping us out, right? Absolutely. So, um, and I think this uh, idea of, of course, uh, more Black folk being able to be open and tell their personal stories of um, living with a mental health condition, um, recovery from, if that's the terminology people like to use, and also had uh, uh, experiences with uh, suicide ideation or attempt to be able to talk about that. Because you're right, it's it's uh, more common, but we feel very embarrassed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while, of course, to really uh, share about my personal experiences. And I shared little by little by little because, um, you know, there's so much um, stigma yeah. or um, thoughts about, you know, having a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Like you say schizophrenia and people like cringe or yep. kind of move away. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you think I'm going to do? You're two <laughs> feet away from me. Cause now you move three feet away from me that that's going to keep right. me safe from something. I don't know. Right. I have no idea, you know, but I think it is hard for us because it's like double, triple, quadruple, quote unquote burden. I don't, I don't think having a mental health condition is a burden myself personally, Karis Myrick, yeah. but I get the sense that like my parents were very concerned when I wanted to be more open about it because they're like, well, you got enough going on. <laughs> you know, yeah. you gotta worry about being black in America. Yes. You gotta worry about being a woman in America. You gotta worry about being a black woman right. in America, <laughs> you know, and now we're going to add on that you ha- have this diagnosis or that you've struggled with, you know, suicide ideation and attempts. No, we're not doing that. Yeah. We're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, had it not been for somebody who shared their story with me, who looked like me, I wouldn't have had the belief that things would have gotten better. So now I feel an obligation to turn around and do the same for others. And so, um, so that's when they were kind of like, yeah, if you think it's going to help somebody else, then yeah, let's, let's go ahead and be more open about it. I think for these um, larger organizations that are primarily white to think about, well, wait a second, uh, I'm looking, I'm looking over here and I see vanilla ice cream. I don't see strawberry. Absolutely. I don't see apricot. I don't see chocolate. Yeah. I don't see, you know, I just see vanilla ice cream. That's problematic. And it's not that vanilla ice cream isn't good. Right. No, ice cream's good. Right. <laughs> but we like a little variety yeah. in the ice cream. Right. So and I think of that it's kind of an easy way to, to help people think if you are only seeing white or vanilla, then we are missing something um, incredibly important. And we're missing helping people who don't look like us, you know, yeah. or whoever those us are. Yeah. And I, I think we need to, you know, and I, I think there's a fear around it too, of, of engaging in this, of in, in this space. And, you know, I think people are concerned about, you know, backlash or doing it wrong and all this other stuff. And, you know, I tell people, you got to go into it. There are people who, you know, know what they're doing, like rely on them to, you know, to to do that. I can honestly say, like, I help co-chair a specific conference with a specific organization. Mm-hmm. In working with them, it, they, they weren't the issue. But once we announced where the conference was going, the conference was centered around health equity and suicide prevention. Um, and we, you know, focused and centered those voices. We had Lorenzo as a as one of the keynotes. Like we, mm-hmm. we, we changed the conversation. And initially, when we put it out, there was so much backlash. It was a lot, but you know, we did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of the best reviewed conferences that they ever had because we finally stopped making it 
the same for everybody and treating it like everybody is is the same and not yeah. getting into that nuanced space. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I, I, you know, thank you for that. And I, and I do think it does take, I don't like the word bravery. I don't like the word courage because these are things that we should just be doing yeah. because they're the right thing to do and uh, to hold steadfast against sort of the tide the folks who don't want to do it. I mean, it, it's the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. So, um, this was a heavy conversation yeah. as, um, as per usual. <laughs> so um, <laughs> um, if, if there's, and this is the, you know, when I get to the, if there's one thing that you want people to do. So if there is one thing that you want people to think about well, and, or do, and I, I like the doing, I like the action, yeah. but if we need to start with thinking, I'm okay with that. What would that one thing be around any of the issues we've talked about today? Yeah. I, I think for me, it's really around, checking in and having conversations with people and not being afraid to be open with with people. I think, you know, a lot of us, um, you know, naturally it's a safe thing to kind of stay very surface level with people and, you know, or someone, you know, says something that may, you know, saying that they have an issue, you know, sometimes we may withdraw or, or do things like that. And I, you know, have encouraged people like share, you know, what you're going through in your experience with, with one other person. And especially us as Black people, I, I say to share your experience with another Black person because it does it does two things. It gives you that chance for you to, you know, express the things that, that you're dealing with, your challenges. So it breaks that wall, but it also breaks a potential wall on the other side with that person for them to understand, like, this is okay. Like, it's, it's okay and mm-hmm. safe for me to, to do this. And then at least if I can't do it anywhere, I can do it here. And so, you know, I just encourage people, you know, sometimes, you know, let a person know, like, hey, you want to chat and carve out some time so they're at a, a place that they can receive what you're saying and try to do that and, and, and break those walls um, so we can begin to make these conversations more normal in our community and, and build collective solutions as we're talking to one another. Fantastic. Clap, clap, snap, snap. I usually do my two, three snaps up and several claps. So you got all of that. You are an unapologetically Black unicorn. And I thank you for that and for the work that you're doing. Um, You know, I've been watching from afar out here in California, but, uh, and then tagging and kind of going, you know, hey, check out the, you know, Black Mental Wellness Lounge. And so there are those resources for people too. So thank you for joining me today on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And, um, you know, inviting everybody else to join us next week. So thanks so much, Brandon. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.